Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we welcome the award-winning, best-selling children's book author and illustrator and filmmaker, Vashti Harrison. Vashti just released Big, her first fictional picture book, which she both wrote and illustrated. Big is an emotional exploration which follows a child's journey to self-love, and it shows the power of words to both heal and hurt. Listeners at home, you will know Vashti Harrison from her Little Leaders series, as well as being the illustrator behind Lupita Nyong'o's Sulway and Matthew Cherry's Hair Love. Today, Vashti and I talk about her book, Big, the ways that Vashti approaches writing versus illustrating, and how she stays connected to young people and her own inner child. Remember, our May book club pick is This Boy We Made, a memoir of motherhood, genetics, and facing the unknown by Taylor Harris. We will discuss the book on May 31st with Nicole Chung. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you are sitting at home and you're thinking, gosh, I love The Stacks, and I want more of this incredible podcast and book community, well, Listen, you can have that. You just head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. It's just $5 a month and you get a bunch of perks, including our bonus episodes, our monthly virtual book club meetups, our incredible discord community. And you get to know that you're helping to make this book podcast possible every single week. Head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join now. And if $5 a month seems like too much, we now offer a free Stacks Pack membership. Head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join now. Shout out to our newest member, Elizabeth Ellington. Thank you all so much and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. Now it's time for my conversation with Vashti Harrison. All right, everyone. I'm so excited. I'm here today with Vashti Harrison, who is an author and a filmmaker and an illustrator and has a brand new children's book out called Big. Vashti, welcome to The Stacks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you about this book. Um, We always sort of start here. In about 30 seconds or so, will you just tell folks about Big? Sure. So Big is my first picture book, my first piece of fiction. Um, I think... 
something that I've tried to incorporate into all of my work and especially my illustration work are, you know, sweet and innocent children characters that we can fall in love with and want to go on adventures with and root for. Um, so that's definitely what I've tried to create with this book. So Big tells the story of a little girl who's experiencing some really big feelings about her body and it follows her on her journey towards self-love and she sort of reclaims her own narrative. Um, it explores some very real challenges that many young black girls are facing, including adultification and anti-fat bias. Yeah, I mean, so I grew up as a dancer mm. and the little girl in at the center of Big it, it has a relationship with dance. And I just, this book really like hit the nail on the head for me. I was like, I was emotional a little bit reading it. I just thought you did such a nice job of kind of bringing in a lot of like difficult things in this really beautiful and lovely way. And my big question, of course, is like, how are you thinking about audience? How are you thinking about the children versus the parents? Because you're writing for an age group where the parents are definitely involved in the book as well. So how do you think about that balance? Yeah, that's a really great question because it's something that I really kind of maybe agonized over for a long time because <laughs> the story, you know, I felt really emotional writing it. It comes from a really personal place. Um, you know, in it, I'm really trying to capture these feelings I experienced as a child. Um you know, the main character isn't me. She doesn't have a name, but, you know, I wanted readers to be able to empathize with her and her experience. And, you know, in that way, I hope it resonates with people on this universal level. Um, but, you know, I am approaching these thoughts and feelings and experiences that I had as a child from as an from an adult perspective. So mm -hmm. I worried, you know, am I writing something that is too adult? It's from this adult perspective. And in some cases, like I do want to be speaking to adults in the room about mm -hmm. what it's like to be a kid walking around in the world with other people's labels on you. So, you know, this book is for children. It is for, you know, anyone who, you know, might see themselves in this character story or know someone who feels, who, who looks like this character. Um, and I wanted it to sort of be a roadmap for how, you know, someone could be on this journey towards self-love and, you know, perhaps offer them a tool of how to process these heavy emotions and how to let go of the things that are not useful or helpful for you. But, you know, it's definitely, you know, something that I want adults to read and understand about how their words affect young people and, you know, how we can use and should use our words to empower and uplift children. And how do you or what's your relationship to children like now? Because I know for me, I, I recently had children, but before that, I wasn't really around children. I'm obviously not a children's book author or illustrator, but I'm just wondering, like, how do you stay connected to young people? How do you stay rooted in what what is interesting or exciting for them. Yeah, I think as an author, something that I'm always trying to do is stay connected to the 
child within me, the child that I once was. And that's <laughs> definitely where I'm approaching yeah. um, a lot of my artwork from, a lot of my storytelling from. But, you know, like I'm also, I'm not a parent I, and I don't have kids around me all the time. I do very fortunately get to go to schools all the time and, and right, interact right. with young people and like get firsthand feedback on what they like or what they don't like or what they're interested in. You know, I try to stay in touch with friends and family who do have kids. But for me, it's really about trying to stay connected to that young person. What kind of story did I need when I was growing up? What would have been really helpful for me? Um, because, you know, I really didn't see myself in books, you know, as much as like I didn't see characters that looked like me, my skin tone, my race, my body shape. I also didn't see a lot of like really kind of shy and quiet characters, you know, so I really wanted mm. to make things that spoke to these, you know, kids that may not get to see themselves in, you know, many different ways in the stories that they read and create something, you know, that they can reflect on. Oh, I love that. I'm a totally opposite personality. So I feel like there was a lot of little kids that acted like me, but not not a lot that looked like me. Mm. Uh, <laughs> a lot of bad wild kids in stories. That's that's my jam. A lot of ma Mad Maxes around. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just think it's so interesting because you I know that children love your work and I just it's such a gift to be able to speak to young people and I I love that you're sort of rooting that in in your own like inner child and past self because so many adults myself included lose that it's hard to stay rooted to that and I think you know obviously it works like it's working for you because my niece I told her I was talking to you today and she was like well, what are you going to say? I was like, well, I get to interview her. You know, I talk about books. And she's like, well, why does she want to talk to you? <laughs> I was like, well, she probably doesn't want to talk to me, but she's going to be forced to. Oh but goodness. just like that kids are so excited by what you have to say and like what you're doing. I, I think that's just so, I, I, to me, it's special. And it, mu it must be special to you to have that relationship with them. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely treasure and cherish that because you can't force it. Kids will definitely tell you when they don't like yes. something. So, um, yes. you know, I just feel blessed that I make anything that resonates with any young person. At the center of this, what we talked about is as a young black girl, she's, mm -hmm. you know, told that she's too big physically and she's when she's little, it's cute and sweet and like, oh, this baby's so big and like such a it's a something to be proud of. And at a certain point that changes. And I'm wondering, you know, you at the end of the book, there's an author's note where you talk a little bit about how some of the things that happened in the book have happened to you. Some have not. It was sort of based in this personal story for you. And the thing that really stood out to me is like, when did you realize what had happened? Like, when were you able to say, oh, there was a fat phobia or a racial racialization of fatness that impacted me at this young age? Like, do you remember when that kind of light bulb went off for you? I definitely, as a pretty young kid, understood that there were some levels of, of prejudice because of, you know, body shape and size. I think, I, you know, the part of it that seems... I don't know, perhaps on the face is like the insecurity. Like I definitely remember mm -hmm. feeling the insecurity, but I didn't want to make a book that's just, in, you know, it's a very internal book, but it's not just about how she feels. It's about the way the world um, is responding to her and affecting her. And so that part of it, that came from, you know, years of, of 
research and and thinking about and understanding my body. And, you know, a lot of it is inspired by me having read this study that came out of the Georgetown Law Center on Poverty Inequality and Inequality mm. called Girlhood Interrupted. And it talks about the adultification of black girls. And so through that study, you know, I mean, at the heart of it, it says, you know, Black girls as young as the age of five are viewed as less innocent and more adult than their white counterparts. And that's not just from from white adults or black adults. It's across the board. And this results in them receiving less nurturing and less care. And there are many you know, metrics that feed into these things about adultification bias, like that, that encourages people to believe that these kids are, you know, some kids are more mature, more adult, more responsible responsible or more knowledgeable than their like image would Mm -hmm. suggest but you know the way that they you know grow the way their bodies look their height their voice all of these things feed into that and so that understanding and that sort of examination of the the intersection of those two things that came from you know me being an adult looking backwards on all of this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I wanted to capture what it felt like to be a kid, but also to like speak to what's actually happening in our society. Yeah. And you, you know, you famously written book series and something that popped into my head when I was reading this is like this, there, so much of this book is about, you know, being a young girl and having these experiences. Mm -hmm. But we know from, from similar studies and from anecdotal evidence that also young black boys are, suffer from the same kind of adultification and the same sort of, you know, they're too big and they're bad and, you know, all these things being, being put into the school carceral systems and all of this stuff. Do you think you would ever consider doing a, a second book about big black boys? Um, that's interesting because when I came up with the idea for Little Leaders, my first book, you know, one of the first questions people ask me is like, okay, so when will you write the one that features black men in history? <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to say no because I definitely changed my mind on writing that book. So many people came to right. me and said that they really wanted something that they could show their kids and and offer them this sort of reflection of themselves and, you know, perhaps a, a roadmap for how to navigate, you know, their growing up. But specifically, you know, the study that I read was about black girls because, you know, mm. they're there tends to be more open conversation about black boys in our society and just this assumption that black girls can handle it. And that is a direct result Mm. of the adultification of black girls, that they are more knowledgeable, that they are more responsible. And I just want to offer black girls who are shy, who are quiet, who maybe their bodies are bigger, maybe they look more mature, but who still need just as much care and nurturing. So for me, it was, it was speaking to that specific girl. I love that. I want to talk about the illustrations in this book. First of all, they're gorgeous. There is one, I don't even know how to describe it, but where the little girl is like in this corner, mm-hmm. like in the page. And I have like chills just even thinking about it. I, I think that the book is so beautiful. And one of the things that I noticed that you then talk about in the author's note is the use of the color pink. And I would love for you to kind of expand expound on what you say in the author's note and explain to my audience why pink figures so prominently into this book. Yeah. Um, well, I can't remember what I wrote in Mother's Note right now. But I, I know that, you know, I wanted to use color as a way to kind of help tell the story. So I chose pink specifically for this character um, because for me, um, 
you know, I wanted to use um, a character that helped, a color that helped define a character and show how um, it can grow and become more saturated and how it can be dimmed as her light is dimmed throughout the story. And so, you know, I don't feel the most confident in my use of words. I tend to express myself a little bit better through my art. And so I wanted to be able to express mm. these subtle things through the way that we see the lighting, we see the brightness and um, and see that light get dimmed. Um, but for me, you know, I was thinking about creating a world that's fully within this character's mindset. Um, so we are viewing everything through her lens. And for her, she really likes dance and she really likes ballet. And for I chose ballet specifically because I wanted to kind of evoke this idea of innocence and sweetness. Um, and ballet mm. is often a shorthand for that, at least in our culture. You know, I wanted to make something that felt like those um, adorable recitals of little kids dressing in these little tutus and doing these sweet dances um, and because I wanted people to look at this character and go, oh, she's so sweet. I just want to give her a hug. I just want to take care of her and care for her because, you know, that is the thing that, you know, tends to be missing in our society sometimes when it comes to black girls. Um, so for me, the color pink and the flowers and the ballet are all shorthands for this innocence and this sweetness that I want to offer this black girl. I I love that. I love that so much. And and just to refresh you what you said <laughs> in the note about the psychology, pink is associated with gentle love. This is a quote. Oh, yeah. You say, pink is associated with gentle love, tenderness, and nurturing. Pink flowers symbolize innocence, joy, playfulness, and happiness. These are all things this girl deserves, which is what you said. I just oh, I just love job, how Vashti. you kind of laid that out. You did a great <laughs> no, job. Think... You you wrote it. You knew it in your heart, even if you didn't know the exact quote. But it's, it's the just pressure of answering so questions that it just goes blank entirely. It goes blank. <laughs> well, and you also talk about earlier in that little paragraph you say when you were a little you wanted to wear pink and you felt like you couldn't yes. or shouldn't because it was like too much yes. and what's your relationship to wearing color now um my entire wardrobe is very neutral <laughs> i you know i i try to force myself to step out to stand out to wear brighter colors but it is like i think definitely a holdover from my adolescence of wanting to just hide and sink back into the background or, you know, unfortunately, I learned so many things growing up in the 90s and the 2000s about like, what are slimming colors or what are yep. colors that, you know, mm -hmm. make you disappear. And I just like that feels so, you know, I'm still trying to, you know, process how I've internalized so much of that. And so, you know, I wanted a character who stood out and wore these bright colors, but also, you know, let those colors stand in for, you know, for her innocence. Yeah, totally. I, I'm, I think, around the same age as you. And I also, I made a resolution for myself this year to wear more color because I realized that so much of it was steeped in my own, like, body image yeah. things and not in actually my taste necessarily. Yeah, yeah. And that's a shame. I want kids to be able to express themselves however they want, not be afraid of wearing stripes or particular colors. Like that is so unfair. We didn't deserve yeah. that. No, for sure not. And now like that we have to fight against it sucks. Um, you just mentioned that illustrations, the drawing, the art part comes a little easier to you for storytelling versus like the words part. So 
how do you actually put it together? Do you start with the words? Do you start with the images? Like, how do you collaborate with yourself? I tend to come up with ideas while I'm drawing. Um, So I'll Mm. end up, you know, making a drawing takes a long time, right? So I'll spend time coloring something in or adding textures. And through those moments of sort of like meditative coloring, uh, story ideas can come or, you know, I'll create a character really quickly and realize like, oh, wow, I could I could imagine a whole story around her. So for me, it is through the drawing process that that stuff comes um, with big, particularly, you know, I had images in my mind really early on, especially um, from the latter part of the book where she's really kind of boxed in and kind of stuck. And I wanted her mm-hmm. to kind of break free of the box that she gets put in. And so um, that stuff was really kind of clear to me super early on. Um, but when it came to figuring out how I would execute that through, you know, particular styles, I tried lots of different things. So I did tests in pencil and in pastel. Um, I really wanted to kind of evoke that, you know, classic softness of like a Degas dancer painting because mm. those tend to be like the, for me, the like epitome of like beauty and gracefulness Um and that sort of um, impressionistic um, use of color and and texture, I really wanted to incorporate a little bit of that while still making my character really pop off of the page. And so I sort of landed on this place of using pastel textures through and mixing that with digital techniques and making the character really um, rendered and making everything else sort of kind of drift off into the background. And then where do the words come in for you? Or how do the words come in for you? The words were difficult for me. I, you know, <laughs> at one point, I really hoped that this could be like a wordless book. But there were just mm. some very specific things that I, I needed to be clearer. You know, I think if I wanted everything to be on the page without any words, it would have been a really long book with a ton of panels. And I didn't want it to kind of feel like a comic book or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Mm -hmm. you know, I tend to just kind of start talking about what I feel like is going on and, and working that through in my mind and writing notes down and realize, I realized um, one of the key things that I wanted to touch on is starting this book with her as a baby and having her grow and realizing that um, I could use words in this sort of like meta way on the page to kind of showcase how, you know, when she's a baby or when kids are little, we do often use this language that you're such a big girl now. You're a big girl. And that's a good thing. And at some point that changes. Um, And so I wanted to, you know, when like the, you know, essentially inciting incident happens, like words kind of lift out of their speech bubbles and become characters and kind of move on the page in, you know, in physical ways. And they kind of um, become characters. So it's a mixture of just trying to, really focus on what I'm trying to say on a given spread. Um, but I'm really, really grateful for my editor for helping me really pin that stuff down because I will be the first to admit, like, I don't express myself the clearest through through language. And clearly I give long answers because I can't think of concise ways to express myself. 
This is a podcast. Everybody gives long <laughs> answers here. They're not any longer than anyone else's. Don't you worry. Um, this is your first foray into fiction. How's that been? What's that like compared to nonfiction? Like what has are parts easier and harder? Yeah, I think I just second guess myself a lot more with fiction. Mm. The, pre- the pressure feels higher because it feels like it's all on me to have gotten it right. Um, to have done this character, portrayed her in the right way and told her story in the best way possible and shared language that's going to resonate with kids while also still being very clear. It feels so heavy. Um, I mean, little leaders and little dreamers and little legends, like at, I feel at least what I'm doing is sort of translating someone else's story, mm-hmm. someone else's real incredible life into these, you know, shorter versions that will get kids interested. And it doesn't feel like, you know, I'm I'm tr- attempting to do the only version of this person's story out there. Um, so, yeah, it's just different. You know, I feel you know, sometimes insecure about my story structure. Did I do things the best way possible? And, you know, I think I'll always have that little bit of anxiety around writing. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think what's so, you know, unique and special about picture books is that marriage between images and language. So, um, yeah, I tried to really help myself and and you know sort of scaffold the story with really strong choices in color and composition to help lead your eye and help you you know help the reader kind of fall into the story and and really experience what's happening on a like personal level yeah I think you know I asked you before you know how do you get it to resonate with kids and adults and I think some of like what I'm hearing you say translates as a reader of your work that like you care a lot and that comes through that like this that there was a lot of you know not necessarily worry but just like deliberate creative energy put behind the work because as a mom of three and a half year olds I read a lot of kids books Mm -hmm. and they don't all feel as like full and specific as as what as what you do and so I think that maybe on another level resonates with both kids and and adults for sure. Yeah, it's hard to kind of navigate this feeling of like, you know, when I tell other people, other artists about, you know, even just the process of illustrating a book, I always tell them, and you know, it's not like you're just like translating the words into the image. You're extending that story into something visual, a whole new experience. And so like it might you know, say on the page that, you know, the kid looked under their bed um, and rifled through all their toys for what they were looking for. But you as the artist, you spend time and you have to draw all of those toys or you have to make a decision Mm -hmm. about what that kid's room looks like and how that, um, you know, what that tells us about that character and what kinds of toys are under there. And, and there's no, there's no mistakes. You choose every single one of those things. And I always tell artists, like, mm-hmm. it's important and, you know, there shouldn't be any mistakes. And so when it comes to my work, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I can't make any mistakes. So it feels like <laughs> it is the most important thing in the world, but also like, feel, that can feel really scary. But I want to make things that, you know, matter to young people because I remember that feeling of, you know, curling up with a book at night. I remember that personal connection I had to a story. So I want those things to matter. I want to think about those things. But. 
but you know, sometimes I can get in my head about how much pressure I should put into (laughs) each individual choice. (laughs) Uh, I can relate to this. Um, We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, we're back. Just what you were just saying about like having to know what every item is in the room or whatever. It made me think I I was an actor for a while and I went to school for acting and it made me think about how you know you're given a script as a performer and there are certain words that you have to say, but as the character you have to know what else is in the room and like what else is going on with that person's life and like there has to be some richness and just hearing you say that as the illustrator is like you have to figure out all the things that are unsaid but are still present or un like aren't specifically noted but are still in the space and should be on the page. And I, I, it's just such an interesting thing to think about. I want to ask you, so obviously you wrote this book and you illustrated it, but you've also illustrated a lot of books with other people. You've been a collaborator in that way. How is it different when it's when it starts with you versus like trying to get it, quote unquote, right with another person whose story it is? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It is, 
I think it's very different. I think because uh, I know exactly what I want and it's not always easy to replicate exactly what you want. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And you're sort of mm -hmm. like, I mean, that's the the kind of joy of experimentation and joy of art making is things aren't exactly anything. It just kind of comes out on the page in different ways every single time. So it can be a little bit more like agonizing over like, is this right? Questioning, did I get it right? Um, when it is my own work and when it's someone else's work, I, I think I can do a little bit more examination of the story and really try to focus in on how to visualize or how I would visualize each single scene. It's It feels like I kind of treat it like being a filmmaker. You know, I think of the author as like maybe the screenwriter and maybe the, the editor is our producer, but I'm playing multiple roles. I'm like the cinematographer. I'm choosing what the scene looks like. I'm the set dresser. I'm designing mm -hmm. what the scene, what's going on in the scene, what's in the background. I'm designing the characters. I'm casting the movie or, or the play. Um, and I'm designing their costumes. So all through all of these choices, I get to sort of imagine like here's one single shot of, of how to execute what's on the page. And it feels a little bit sort of in the way that it's easier to uh, examine other people's work than it is to examine your own. I can right, – it's a little right. bit easier for me to just kind of isolate these single scenes whereas, you know, because I'm fully – wrapped up in the story that I'm writing, I'm questioning, well, would this scene look better if I changed the writing? <laughs> I could rewrite the scene so that I, this this shot would look better. So I, you know, I give myself a little bit too much freedom when I'm working on just my own projects to, to question and rewrite. Whereas, you know, when I get a manuscript written by someone else, it is fixed, it is firm, you know, to a degree. And, you know, I'm doing my very best to um, execute what I feel is like coming through in the story. And when you work with other people, do you ever find that you maybe take on a project and then you realize like, oh, this is not a good partnership or you take on something and you're like, oh my gosh, I could work with this person forever. Obviously you do not need to name names, but I guess I'm thinking like you probably get the story and you're like, oh, I would like to do this. And then sometimes like it's not what you thought or it is what you thought. I don't know. Just like if there's any dissonance in that collaboration, I guess. Not usually because, you know, as an illustrator, I get to you know, pick and choose what I work on, you know, often, mm -hmm. often what will happen is like an author will sell their manuscript to a publisher and the publisher will start reaching out, um, you know, the art director or the editor will start reaching out to different illustrators that they might have in mind for a certain project. So I'll get to read the manuscript before, you know, and decide if I want to work on it. And so I, I never say yes to things that I don't think I can bring something to. I do mm. often ask, like, do you guys have a particular style in mind? Because I think I change my style up pretty differently based on the kind of story I'm illustrating. Um, or, mm -hmm. you know, I'll ask, like, do you think that there will be a heavy use of cars and vehicles? Because maybe that won't be the best best book <laughs> for me to illustrate. Like, how much do you want to focus on the background? Or how much do you want to focus on the little details? Mm. Um, and so, you know, I'll know before I go in if it's something that I think I can um, – really kind of collaborate with. Um, so, 
I think that's one part of the process that a lot of people don't know how it works. It's not that like, yeah. you know, I'm I'm assigned to a book and I have to illustrate it or, you know, and the author finds me and I have to work with them. Honestly, I get to pick and choose. And, and I really only want to focus on books that I feel like I can bring my best self to, my best work um, to, you know, probably share that story with young readers. Okay, this is sort of a made-up hypothetical here. Mm -hmm. Is there any person whose children's book you would be like, I have to illustrate it. That is my dream person to illustrate for. Does that exist for you? <laughs> um, <laughs> no. I mean, this is this is maybe a little bit of industry tea. Um, I think, you know, I've, I've had my the opportunity to work with celebrities before. Often, yeah. like, you know, I might say like Michelle Obama just so that I could work with Michelle Obama. Um, but yeah, that's a good answer. Also, I think you should say that for sure on the record. <laughs> but also there's a lot of pressure on a Michelle Obama book. Sometimes it might be like, sure. oh, yeah, we need this out to market in the next six months. You have to do the art in the next two weeks. And I would say absolutely not. I can't do that. So, you know, I understand the stakes at play when sometimes you might work on a big high profile book. So, right. um, yeah. And what is your timeline normally? Like if, <laughs> long, if, like long, like like six months, like a year. You know, it really depends. Like right around the time that I got into the industry, you know, books take a long time. It's usually like yes. um, on standard, like an eighteen month process. So like you'll sign the deal, you'll maybe get the manuscript after like a, a month or a few months or, you know, maybe later. And I'll have like a year or so to work on the art. And that's like first round of sketches, second round of sketches, maybe third round of sketches, then final art, then another round of final art, and then all of the changes. So, you know, those are, that's usually about a year. Um, but the uh -huh. year that I did Hair Love I think that was like the year 2018 or 19. I don't know. I tried, I did four books that year. Hair Love, Soulway. I wrote and illustrated Little Dreamers and CC Love Science, um, the second one in that um, in that series. So that was a lot of books and I had wow. to go as fast as I possibly could. So, you know, I definitely got burnt out from trying to do too many projects at one time. I just kept saying yes because I was so sure, like, someone's going to figure out that, you know, I don't have a background in illustration. Someone's going to figure out that I don't belong here. So I don't know if this is going <laughs> to last forever. Uh, but now, like, you know, in the pandemic, things slowed down a lot. And I had a lot more time on a book I did called Hello Star to do a lot mm -hmm. of experimentation and change up my style, work traditionally. Um, and then because um, Big was a personal project, I had started writing and sketching that book many years before, you know, I ever sold it. And by mm. the time it sold, it still took like almost um, two years to to you know, get everything done and get it out. So it can take a long time. I think if I really had to, I would go a lot faster, but I don't have to anymore. So I don't want to go mm -hmm. fast if I don't need to. Okay. This might be a stupid question, but I am very bad at visual art, like deeply terrible at drawing and like any sort of rendering of a human face or anything in the world. And I'm wondering when you're drawing a character that you've created, like the girl in Big, is it hard to remember what she looks like? Yeah, 
I have to draw her over and over and over again to get myself comfortable with um, knowing her proportions and knowing what she looks like. And I'm not that good at that part. Like I don't love forcing myself to draw things over and over again. I remember when I was a little mm-hmm. kid, I thought, oh, I could – I like animated movies. I could be an animator. And then I found out you had to keep drawing the same character over and over again. And I felt like I could, I knew I was a little kid and I was like, oh, I can't do that. That's out for me. I was like, I can't, I can't recreate the same character from different angles. And that has, you know, that is a, a skill that everyone can get to if that is a goal Mm -hmm. for you. And Mm -hmm. it becomes easier and easier the more you practice it, but it is not, Mm -hmm. it's not, simple. Um, so I will acknowledge that for anybody who does that work, it is like a very impressive thing, but it's not impossible for you to learn if that's where you want to get. But for me, there are some books where I think it's a, a little bit more important to get the character just right on every single page. I was a little worried about Sulway, um, the book mm-hmm. that I illustrated written by Lupita Nyong'o. Um, she, she's a very specific character and she has mm-hmm. a lot of emotions to show on her face. And, you know, I was a little, you know, I was nervous about working with Lupita. She's an actor and so much of her work comes, you know, is about expressing emotions on your face. So I, mm-hmm. I had a feeling that, you know, that was going to be really important. So, you know, that's a book where I spent way more time trying to make sure I was like accurate from spread to spread of that character's mm-hmm. face with big, you know, she's really simple styled character, but she's not exactly the same on every single page. And, you know, if I could, I would love to make it just perfect, but it's actually not the most important part of the story Hmm. that, you know, her exact proportions are exactly the same. I think it's perfectly fine that it, it varies from spread to spread, especially if the style of the book is a little bit more impressionistic. Um, But yeah, I remember Mm -hmm. being really um, discouraged when I was a little kid, realizing that animators draw the same character. (laughs) (laughs) Did you always want to be an artist? When I was really little, I did, yeah. I wanted to draw forever. And as I got older, I I didn't know that there were other ways to be an artist. I, you know, I would Mm. see things in movies like, you know, a famous artist in a movie or a professional artist in a movie was always like a person who was painting on a canvas in like Mm -hmm. a big loft Mm -hmm. studio and like throwing paint. And I was like, well, I don't want to be a painter in in that way. So I guess (laughs) I can't be an artist. So this is why representation Mm. matters because I didn't know there were so many different ways to be an artist to make art out there. And as I got a little bit older than that, I realized like I would hear things about people saying like, I like Harriet the Spy was my favorite movie when I was a kid, the Nickelodeon version starring Michelle Trachtenberg. Okay. And I learned yes. I learned a term in that movie, starving artist. And I got so mm. scared. It really, <laughs> it stuck with me. And I got so scared that like you, people who are professional artists are starving. Like he, the, the, it was like one of the parents in the movie. And I just, it was a discouraging thing that I learned. So I, tried to put that in the back of my mind, like, okay, well, you can't be a professional artist because those are painters. And if you are a painter, you're going to be a starving artist. <laughs> Just like really mm. bad things to internalize as a kid. But, you know, so I forced myself to, you know, try other things. When I got to college, I was like miserable trying to um, study political and social thought. And eventually, you know, I took an art history class, which was like my gateway back into art. And I was like, well, maybe I'll just take a drawing class. And it was mm. from there, like, I I realized, like, I can't 
can't keep myself from art. I need to do this. And it may not be my full-time job, but I want to be able to be making art. Um, and I had kind of a, you know, a breaking point in college where I was like, well, I don't even know if I want to stay in this college. Maybe, maybe I should go to art school, but if I go to art school, what do I study? I don't, I don't want to be, am I, am I going to be just a drawer? Is that, are people just drawers for a living? (laughs) So I was looking through all these different things and I realized, you know, something I'd been wanting to explore was filmmaking. And I, it was, you know, purely by, by luck that I kind of fell into this and I didn't end up transferring, but I studied media studies and cinematography at the University of Virginia, and I, I fell into experimental filmmaking, which was an incredible process for me because it helped me to start making art that had meaning. It wasn't just me copying my favorite characters off of the TV. It wasn't me just copying, mm. you know, bodies and clothes from fashion magazines. I was telling stories. I was making meaning with my art, and that's what got me into – I went to grad school to study experimental film, and that's where I picked up drawing again at CalArts, and that is like the beginning of my path towards becoming a children's book illustrator. It had many, many other bumps and side paths and got sidetracked for a while, but I think the the pull to, to make art was always there, and there were other things in life, you know, expectations and pressures from, you know, myself and from – you know, what I thought was success um, that kept me confused for a really long time. But, um, you know, I'm grateful that I got here. First of all, I love that story because I love when people's story is super not linear. I just think it's a good reminder to all of us. Um, But something you said about when you started making film and you started sort of making like, I guess, generative art where like you were creating the thing from your own brain and, Mm -hmm. and mind and stuff. Can you talk a little bit about what that felt like for you from switching from kind of creating or or. Well, I think you said copying, but like taking art things that were already in the world and and rendering them in another way versus generating something that didn't exist that came from you. Yeah, I mean, it was just it felt like so powerful and meaningful to to make something that um, came from within myself and you know expressed something. And, and I think you know that's the word I've been using over and over again. But I think that is it. Like I was expressing something from within myself rather than just, you know, doing, which was the kind of, you know, drawing that I was doing, which was just replicating, which is like a a really important fundamental that many artists have to do, like taking Mm -hmm. these like life drawing classes and still lives and stuff like that. Um, So that is like a tool in your toolkit, but you as an artist is, you know, the ideas that you have within you and the things that you want to say. So just as much as I think that, you know, the pencil is one of my tools, you know, the film camera and, you know, clay and toy making and wood are other tools in that toolkit to to express and tell the different stories that you have. Um, So I think it just felt really empowering to be able to, um, to know that I could, kind of create something that was all my own. I just love that. Um, A question I ask everyone, and I'm going to make it a two-parter for you. I've never asked the second part before, but I've also never had a writer illustrator on the show before. So you get to be the guinea pig. Mm -hmm. Um, But the first part of the question is, what's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Ooh, I, I don't know. I've like 
maybe undiagnosed, but as I've gotten older, I think I've become like slightly dyslexic. So I, I always swap letters when I'm writing. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so often, I mean, this is crazy. I spell my name wrong all the time. So that's the one that's probably Hmm. the most frequent. Um, but mostly I recently, anything that ends in a Y, like say the word spooky, I add an L-Y-N mm-hmm. to it, like Brooklyn. So spooky becomes spooklin. <laughs> I think that's just a habit that I have. So everything that ends in a Y is now Brooklyn. That's so funny. <laughs> okay, and then part two of this question, because uh-huh. I've heard other friends who are artists, what's the thing you can't draw? Hands. Hands. That's, yeah. I feel like that's a common one, it's right? It's pretty common. I mean, like hands and noses. Oh, yeah, that's fair. I don't know. The, the funny thing is, you know, everyone's talking about AI art and AI art, you know, has been having a hard time replicating hands. And I was like, bro, I've been there. The, the, tr- the, tr- <laughs> the trick was putting people's arms behind their backs. Like, that's what I'm yes. doing. Lots of pockets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love that. I love that even with this, like, insane AI situation, AI, too, has the same human struggles. Um, <laughs> but also they could be robots that will eat us all. So let's not be too friendly with them. Um, Another question I always like to ask people, and I guess this is also sort of two part, but it's how do you like to write? And for you also illustrate, where are you? How many hours a day? How often is there music or no? Are there snacks and beverages? If so, what are they? And I guess how do those two things differ from you for you? Like, how are you when you're writing versus how are you when you're illustrating? Uh, Writing needs to be quiet and or Either, either pure quiet in my house or in a coffee shop with some ambient noise, but no music, mm-hmm. no headphones in. Um, drawing ideally is in my office slash studio in my house. I, dis- I like supremely dislike when people are like watching me draw, um, which is the <laughs> thing that everyone wants to do. I get it. I like I want to watch mm-hmm. people draw too, but uh, I prefer the privacy <laughs> of my home to just like draw my bad hands 15 times over and over again. And drawing can have background noise, either like a podcast or audiobooks or like the TV on kind of low or, you know, the TV on high and I'll listen, you know, any show that's like super drama, like dialogue based. So um, those are those are good ones that you can just like listen to and follow the whole story without looking up from from what you're doing <laughs> or uh, mm-hmm. or reality TV. Um, and are you watching Love is Blind? I am. And I watched a whole hour of a loading screen last night, along with everybody else. <laughs> um, um, okay, this. we won't go too deep into it. Have you watched? I haven't watched it yet. I was traveling yesterday, so I missed it anyways, but I haven't had time yet today. Uh, the embarrassing the, like, thing is I watched now. I watched someone else's live stream of it on their TikTok. So I got some of it. Oh, my gosh. It was, it was purely for the, like, the this is a live moment and I'm, I have to mm-hmm. have to be a part of it. Even if I'm not getting all the information in the right way, there's something about like the live tweeting and everyone's trying to figure out what's going on. So I did watch. I know I was glad because I was so worried there was going to be spoilers mm-hmm. last night, but because it got all screwed up, there haven't really been that many spoilers yet though. Yeah. I need to watch in the next like little bit before there are, yeah, that, um, that but I did skip over on before. I know. I'm also late on succession. Mm-hmm. Travel days, the worst. Ruin su- Traveling on a Sunday is impossible during succession and love is blind season. It's just <laughs> no good. Um, I did kind of jump over my favorite part of the question, though. Snacks mm-hmm. and beverages. Uh, usually just coffee, hot coffee, cold coffee. How do you take it? 
Um, I just got myself a fancy espresso machine. So ideally, oh. if, you know, if everything goes right, an Americano with half and half. Mm, I love half and half. I'm a tea girl, but I put half and half in my tea, which I know is a, a little excessive, but that's me. How do you tap into your creativity? Do you have any things that you do to help you stay like generative or are there things that you do when you feel yourself like slumping either with your writing or your filmmaking or your illustrations or anything? Yeah, for me, the thing that always gets me re-energized is kind of switching up media. So, um, Mm. you know, when I'm like maybe working on a book and it's you know, I'm at the stage where I'm fully on the computer and I have to be, you know, illustrating on my on my computer with my drawing tablet. Um, I will try to make space for doing something with my hands. So I'll like just make a sketch with pastel or I'll make something to post on social media or, you know, more recently I've been experimenting with making figurines and dolls and toys. So um, and and that will kind of get that creative spark going again to make me want to go back to working on another project or make me want to write. So it's kind of tricking myself like, here's a treat. You can work on this for a little while and then you get to work on this for a little while. Mm, I love that. Um, I know that the at, at the time of us talking right now, the book is not out yet. But when people are listening, the book is out in the world and you can get it wherever you get your books. But what comes next for you? Do you know? Uh, I don't have anything on the books. I don't have another book on the books right now, um, which feels <laughs> exciting. I get to kind of pick and choose what I work on next. Um, but I am experimenting, forcing myself to do some more long form writing. Um, and so maybe there will be something longer in the future. Who knows? Um, I have another book coming out later this year, um, another hair love book, an ABC book. So mm. that one was really fun, mm-hmm. just exploring all these different hairstyles. I love drawing hair. So um, that was really great. And, you know, I think creatively I am excited about, you know, potentially just making more things, physical objects. So, you know, I'm trying to like look forward to just experimenting throughout the summer, kind of treat it like summer camp. Mm. (laughs) That's fun. Your books are beloved. And I'm wondering for you who the coolest person is who's expressed interest or gotten back to you that they've read your stuff. Hmm. Honestly, I get to encounter a lot of adults who read my books when I get letters or or notes or even just, um, you know, kids when I meet them you know, at schools, it always feels like way more, um, you know, earnest and meaningful when a kid is actually like, no, I love this book. Not my mom (laughs) bought me this book or my, my parent Mm. bought me this book. Um, I think a a few years ago, right, right after little leaders came out, um, I was in California and was walking down the street and I saw a little girl with my book and I was like, flabbergasted it is I think the only time I've ever seen my book out in the wild for real like not at a bookstore but just someone holding it and reading it and that like will I'll never lose that image I took a picture with her and it's always it always pops up on my phone and it's like that feels so real feels so good um so you know it it means so much when a kid you know 
expresses like a true appreciation for my work because then I know that I've done at least something right. Right. And that's so special because I feel like your books often stay in the house. Right. Like it's like a book Mm -hmm. that like like you read at bedtime or whatever. Like I don't take my kids books out of the house very much. You know, I'm just thinking about like Mm. what that was like a really special moment because that child took the book out of the house. Mm. And I feel like so many kids books just stay in the house or maybe like stay in a backpack or whatever. Um, Anyways, very, that's a very cute story (laughs) for, for people who love big, what else might you recommend to them? That's in conversation with big. I think there are a lot of really great other children's books that tackle this conversation about our bodies. Um, There's one called Bodies Are Cool by Tyler Fetter um, that I think is the gold standard of just letting people know that all bodies are different. That is really just cool and amazing. Um, There is a book by Shelley Anand called I Love My Body Because. Um, Mm. And then for any adult that is interested in really examining um, more about adultification, I would highly recommend the study from the Georgetown Law Center on Poverty and Inequality. It's called Girlhood Interrupted. Um, and you can find that on their website. And they have, you know, a, a few more um, – they have some videos and stuff on their YouTube channel. So you know, I think it's super useful. Um, but for other kids, I think – um, a slightly older kid, um, there's a great book in verse called Starfish that I think is really lovely. Yeah, lots of beautiful illustrations. So I think they're, I mean, I think we're really fortunate that um, there are so many more options these days. Uh, I will link to everything you said today in the show notes for great. people. Um, so, th- so those will all be there. I just, this question, I, I don't know, I wasn't planning on asking you about this, but um, I'm curious about this trend in publishing where white authors and are writing books about children of color and are not putting their, the author's like photo or face on the book Mm. in this sort of like earnest way of capitalizing air quotes on diversity or whatever. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, but as a parent, of black children, it's been really frustrating to me um, in the bookstore trying to figure out who wrote this book and is this a maneuver to sell books because black and brown kids are in, quote unquote, or I don't know. So I don't know if you have any thoughts or if you can speak to that at all. Yeah, I I mean, I know what you're talking about. I feel like I haven't encountered so many of those experiences, but yeah, mm-hmm. I know that the own voices movement was really important to people um, and authors from like the Weenie Diverse Books movement. So own voices, it, it just means that this is a story that speaks to the experience or the background that the author or illustrator is coming from. And so, you know, I find those books to be the most um, meaningful for me. And so mm-hmm. I think as a parent or just a person who buys books for kids, I, I know that it is a little bit harder <laughs> to, to, to spend that extra time doing that research, but I think it makes the, the reading experience a little bit more meaningful. That's not to say that there aren't like well-written books or beautiful books by people who are not from the background of the character that, you know, that they're, they're protagonist, right. but, um, at least for me, um, you know, I, I tend to spend a lot more time 
following and keeping up with authors and illustrators that I really admire. And so, you know, I tend to know exactly what I'm getting at and getting when I look for one of their books. So, you know, it's tough, it's complicated. And I have, you know, yeah, I don't know. I don't feel like I haven't encountered it that much to feel particularly um, lost in the bookstore, but, you know, I will always do my best to kind of promote own voices stories and recommend those to, to young readers. Yeah, that's appreciated for sure. Um, this is my last question for you. If you could have one person dead or alive read big, who would you want it to be? Hmm. I don't know. I would be so scared to, to share it with like people that like I really admire and look up to, but, (laughs) um, you know, if, if it was guaranteed that they were going to like it, (laughs) And I would say, like, mm-hmm. maybe, like like maybe Toni Morrison. I would really love. Mm. I mean, I think. She'll love it. I, I would hope so, honestly. I think this was a really tough book to write. And I just really hope that I, I got it right, that I got the message right and shared it in the best way possible. Um, but the people that it's for are for our young people. And so I just hope that, that it, it resonates with any one person that'll mean I've done my job right (laughs) if it resonates with the young Mm. reader. Well, everyone, the book is big. It is out in the world now. You can get it wherever you get your books. Uh, Vashti, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Vashti Harrison for joining the show. I'd also like to say thank you to Caroline Sun for helping to facilitate this interview. Don't forget our May book club selection is This Boy We Made by Taylor Harris. We will discuss the book on May 31st with Nicole Chung. If you love this show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you're listening to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and TikTok and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagiragis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.